you very much. Good morning. Great to see you. It, it, it seemed kind of appropriate on a day when we're dedicating children to the Lord to go to Psalm 139. Um, and particularly that part that you just saw on the video, um, you know, which just declares the sovereignty of God, which is exactly what we were declaring this morning in entrusting these children to God. That part of the psalm is probably the most well-known part, and it is amazing in itself. But actually, when you take the whole of this psalm, you take it as a whole, which is what I'm going to try and do today, I just find it breathtaking in, in what it tells us about God, what it tells us about ourselves, about how we relate to God. There is a, there is a magnificence to this psalm. It shows us the cosmic scale of God, but it's also intensely personal. Do you know, in this psalm... Some of the deepest questions of life that lots of people ask are answered. Do I matter? Do I have a purpose? Does God really care about me? So I like this psalm. So we're going to read it. Psalm 139. I'm going to read the whole thing. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in. Behind and before, you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. And then there's a slightly strange bit. (laughs) We're going to read it anyway, and I will mention it. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So this... This psalm shows us three key attributes of God, which, all of which make him uniquely God. And it's all the omni words, that he is omniscient, he's all-knowing, he is omnipotent, he is all-powerful, 
and he is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere all the time. These three things, these omni-words, are what are known as the incommunicable attributes of God. They're those attributes that only God has. They're not passed on to anyone else. Nobody else shares in them, unlike some of his communicable attributes, like love and joy and creativity. Those are attributes of God that get passed on to us because we're made in his image. We, we share in those attributes, what makes us very different from animals. But not the incommunicable attributes We don't have any share in his omniscience, in his omnipotence, and his omnipresence. And all three of those attributes of God are present in this psalm. And particularly, I'd say, overall, it's really the focus on his presence in our lives. There are three things that this psalm tells us about the presence of God. First is that the presence of God is inescapable. Second is that his presence is a threat. And third is that his presence brings transforming joy. So first, his presence is inescapable. There are three sections in this psalm, or three stanzas in this psalm, which show different ways in which God surrounds us. So in the first section, in verses 1 to 6, we see that we're surrounded by the knowledge of God, his knowledge of us. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. He He knows you. I wonder, are you known by anyone else? I mean, are you really known by any other person? Or do you live with that fear of, if people really knew me, if people really knew what I was like, then they would reject me. They wouldn't like me at all. I think lots of people live their lives without really being known by anyone else, by any other person. You just see what's on the outside. You see the facade that is, that is presented. Or it might be that you are known by maybe one or two others who know you pretty well. They've got a good insight into you and what makes you tick, into what you think, that kind of thing. I've been married to Suzanne for over 13 years, so we know each other pretty well. Still learning, but we know each other pretty well. You know, we have a pretty good idea of what each other is thinking, but I can't know perfectly what she's thinking. I can't know every, every single detail I mean, there is a wider question at play here, which is, is it, if it's possible for any man to fathom the, the inner workings of the female mind, but that's a question for another day. The point I'm making is, however well you know someone, or, or you think you know someone, you don't know them perfectly. You don't know everything about them, but God does. He does. He knows everything. He knows, he knows you. He really knows you. He knows everything about you, your thoughts and your actions. He knows you inside and out. He knows your every motive. I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes to work out what my motives are. They're mixed at the best of times. He knows perfectly our motives. He knows knows the most hidden things of your heart, those things that you have never and would never tell anybody else. Now, does that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? It probably should. (laughs) And then look at verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Even before I know I'm going to say something, he knows it completely. Well, how is is that? How can that be? Well, you think of your life like a timeline, because we live in time. We go from moment to moment. We have past, present, future. And think of that timeline of your life being like a river. And it's a river that has lots of bends, twists, turns in it. And so you can only ever see the bit that you're in at the moment. You can't see ahead. You can't see what's around the corner. And you only have memories 
of what's gone behind. So there are all these different parts of the river, different moments, different times of your life that you can't see yet. But God is not bound by time. He's not in time. This, is, this, this starts to kind of blow our minds a little bit. He is not in time. So if you imagine next to your river, there's a mountain, and God is standing on top of that mountain looking down at the whole of your river because he sees every part of your life, past, present, and future, all at once, all at the same time. When God looks at time, he sees all of time happening at once. So him knowing what you're going to say before even you know what you're going to say, that's not God in the present foretelling the future, because this isn't present for God. It's present for us, but it's not present for God, because he sees all of time, all moments are present for God. Things can happen to us, and we say, well, I didn't see that coming. It's not true of God. He's never taken by surprise like that. He sees all of you, the whole of you. Your whole life at once. So God not only knows who you really are, but he knows you fully. He knows you fully, the full picture. Everything, past, present, future, that has and does and will go into making you who you are, God already knows it. So he not only knows everything about you, he knows you infinitely more than you know yourselves. He is an om- he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. We are surrounded by his knowledge of us. In the next section, verses 7 to 12, we see that we're surrounded by the presence of God. So it says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, that word is sheol, means grave. You are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there. You are there. We're surrounded by his presence. He says, where can I flee from your presence? The word, the Hebrew word for presence means face. So it's where, where can I flee from your face? God's face is everywhere. Wherever you go, there is God's face. See, when a child asks, where is God? Where does God live? The standard answer is, well, he, he's everywhere. And then you see the cogs starting to turn in their head and they start kind of doing this. And it's like, am I, am I hitting God then? Am I sitting on God? Am I licking God? Am I kissing God? And, um, and then, of course, it evolves onto other things. If you're anything like my children, when I go to the toilet, what? and I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you imagine the rest. So we have this image of God's omnipresence of being like, kind of like a gas filling Every space, God's like this kind of gas just filling up all the spaces. That's not what it means. Where can I flee from your face, from your gaze, from your attention, from your presence? He's not stretched out and extended like gas. No, all of him, the whole of who he is, is everywhere. I mean, this is <laughs> that means that God is present to every point of time. And he's present in every point of space. I, mean, I said this is breathtaking in what it tells us about God. It is too much for us. Then next section, verses 13 to 18. So we, we're surrounded by his knowledge of us. We're surrounded by his presence. And verses 13 to 18, we see we're surrounded by his power. We just see his power at work. For you created my inmost being. He created your soul. Who you are, the essence of who you are. You knit me together in my mother's womb. He created your body. 
I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. He created and he sustains. He upholds your body and your soul. You are God's handiwork. You are the work of a master craftsman who pours himself, everything of himself, into what he is making. Every detail thought through, every detail absolutely deliberate and wonderful. And you can imagine just his delight at what he's made, like a craftsman takes delight when he's got it just right. Every single one unique, every single one his masterpiece. So we went to the Royal Albert Hall just the other week, because our daughter Sophie was um, she's eight. She was in a big school production that they were doing at the Royal Albert Hall. There was something like 1,800 children, 1,800 children. It was amazing. I mean, the logistical way that they did this is incredible, and it sounded very good. Um, the thing is, there may have been 1,800 children there, but there was really only one. You know, if you're a parent, you know this, don't you? There's really only one. Because as soon as we caught sight of Sophie, because we were, we were quite far away, we were right up in the circle and all these little dots on the stage. But once we had zoned in, we noticed her. There she is. We were only watching her and her unique Sophiness, her, her unmistakable enthusiasm. And we were looking at her, and there were things she did which just made us laugh. And do you know, we're just looking at her on this stage, oblivious to everything else, and just thinking, she's, she's beautiful. She's, she's lovely. Look at her. She's delightful. And it's because we know her. It's because we love her. We're proud of her. And when she wasn't involved, quite frankly, I was bored. <laughs> it was tedious. I really wasn't interested in hearing these other children singing their songs. As lovely as it was, I know they're somebody else's child, but I didn't know them. I know Sophie. God would have been looking at all those children like we were looking at Sophie because he knows them. He made them. He knows you. He knows you. He made you. There are things about you and what you do that God just delights in because they're things he put in you. I wonder if you believe that. There are things he has put in you that absolutely delight him. You are delightful to him. And then it gets more amazing. Verse 16 says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I mean, not only does he create and sustain your body and your soul, but he ordains... And sustains your whole history, your whole life, your history from conception through to the final breath and beyond. It is ordained. It is ordained. God is in charge. His power overshadows every second of our lives. Do you know, of course, this means there are no accidents. You, some of you may have been told at some point in your life you were an accident. Or you may have heard it said of somebody else, you're an accident, you were unexpected, you were unwanted. Not according to this. You were ordained. You were made on purpose by God. He meant to make you. He took delight in making you. There was no accident about it. So if that's a tag that you 
carry around, you reject it. You can cut it off because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God doesn't make mistakes. He meant to make you. You were ordained. And we live in a world that's obsessed by body image and how we look and just utter dissatisfaction with our bodies. God doesn't make mistakes. He made you as he made you. He doesn't make mistakes. You were ordained. I don't think he intends for us to live our lives in constant misery because of our bodies. It's something I worry about a lot. It takes a lot of work and donuts to, to, <laughs> to keep this as it is, you know. <laughs> he doesn't make mistakes. So we are surrounded by God's knowledge of us. We're surrounded by his presence. We're surrounded by his power. His power overshadows every second of our lives. And that's the first point. God's presence is inescapable. It's absolute and it is inescapable. So what's our response? How do we respond to that as human beings? Well, I think David, the, the writer of this psalm, he gives us an indication of that. The natural human response to this uh, inescapable and overwhelming presence of God. And I think in the first instance, it is to feel utterly threatened by it. It's to feel threatened. It's like David in this psalm goes on a journey in his attitude, in his response to this realization that God is everywhere, that he knows everything, that he's all-powerful. And in verse 6, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me to, it's too lofty for me to attain. And I don't think he means that as positively as it sounds. I don't think he uses that word wonderful in, oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? I, I think he's saying, this is just too much for me. Actually, this freaks me out a bit. I, I can't cope with this. It does my head in. I'm blowing circuits in my brain just thinking about it. It's also because it's a statement that comes out of verse 5, where he says, you hem me in. It's like it's claustrophobic. It feels claustrophobic. The fact that you know everything about me, even the hidden things, I don't think I like that very much. The fact that you are everywhere all the time. There's just a sense of God's presence like a suffocating blanket. Now, you could read it differently. You could read verse 5 and 6 in a more positive light. You hem me in could be seen as a statement of security in God, but I don't think it is. And the reason I don't think it is and that actually there's more a sense of feeling threatened by the presence of God here is because verses 5 and 6 lead into verse 7, which is where he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I flee? That's a word of rebellion. That's a word of running away, escaping. I need to get away from you. I can't cope with this. It's the same words that are used to describe what Jonah did. Jonah, God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want this task that God has given him, and so he runs away. God wants him to go here. Jonah goes in the opposite direction. He tries to flee from the presence of God. He tries to flee from the face of God. So I think this is David actually having a moment of desperation. I, I need to get away. I can't cope. I feel exposed. I need to run. I need to hide from your presence. Now, David comes from an, an ancient Middle Eastern culture where family and community far, far outweigh any idea of individual rights, okay? So he's used to being surrounded. He's used to having other people having a say in how he lives his life and what he does in his life. Yet even he can't cope with this seemingly all-pervasive nature of God's presence. So how much more, then, is that a problem for us? In our culture, 
in our individualistic society where me and my rights win out every time. The most important thing, me and my rights. Self-determination is king. I get to decide about my life, no one else. Don't you dare tell me what to do in my life. That's the attitude that we have in our day. In our culture, this God, the omni-God, is an absolute nightmare. He is a threatening presence. He's an overwhelming, all-pervasive presence that you want to escape from because of the implications for our freedom or how we perceive freedom. That if there is a God who sees everything, if there is a God who knows everything, if there's a God who's in charge, who is in control of everything, then we don't have freedom. The idea that we exist for the glory of God is totally alien to us because that leaves no room for me. I want to live my life for myself, not for God. I want to live free. And so we try to get away from God by not believing in him or by not believing that he's a God like that. We put limits on him, man-made limits. Of course, there is another good reason to want to get away from God, and it's this. It's because he is holy and we are not, naturally speaking. Moses wanted to see the face of God, and God said, you can't. You know, God, he, I'm, I'm holy, you're not. You can't, you can't, you won't survive seeing my face. And God, in his grace, he, he allowed Moses to see some of his glory. He put him in this cleft in the rock and passed by, and Moses was allowed to see the back of him. And that was all Moses could cope with. Peter, when he gets a revelation of just who Jesus is, he gets this moment of revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, that this is, he's not just a prophet, he's not just who, whatever he thought, he, this is the Son of God. What does he say? He doesn't say, oh, I've got it. Wow, I've got it now. He says, away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Which is an unusual thing to say, you think. But it's because in the presence of God, in the presence of holiness, he becomes so aware of his sinfulness. He feels exposed, utterly laid open, laid bare, exposed. In Revelation 6, you have people who are so aware of their sinfulness in the presence of God and in the presence of his holiness, that they're hiding in caves and they're crying out to the mountains, fall on us, fall on us. And what it's saying is in our sinfulness, when our sinfulness gets exposed before God's holiness, you would want the mountains to fall on you because you want to be hidden. You want to be hidden from his sight because he sees you and he knows you. He knows everything. He is holy, we are not. And so we seek refuge where there is none. Then there's a change of tone. In this psalm, David changes, starts to change. He starts to go on this journey. So he's been saying, if I go up here, you're there. If I go down here, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there. And you can almost imagine a pause here. There's not one in the text, but I'm just I'm having a bit of license here. You can imagine a pause. Even there, your hand guides me. Your right hand holds me fast. It's like he's thinking, I, 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 want, I want to be free, but I also want your guidance because that means that your hand guides me so I don't get lost, and your right hand holds me fast so I don't fall. So actually, I want your presence as well. He starts to see the other side of having God's presence. You know, there's the, the, the atheist existentialist argument that I've already that I've already mentioned, that if there's a God, we're not free. If there's a God who sees everything, knows everything, controls everything, then we're not free. And if we are free, then there can't be a God. There's no God. 
But if you extend that reasoning, part of that line of reasoning goes like this, that if God doesn't exist, then everything is permitted. Everything. There are no moral absolutes. Everything is permitted. All opinions are equal. And when you start to go down that line, we run into problems. It was um, Jean-Paul, it was Jean-Paul Sartre who, he was a, an important kind of existentialist atheist thinker and writer. So he made those kind of arguments about God not existing. But it's interesting because he used this phrase, he said, man is condemned to be free. So he believed in no God, he believed in freedom of man, but he said man is condemned to be free. Because freedom means that there is no hand to guide you, there's no hand to hold you. We want freedom, we don't want to be hemmed in, and yet we do want guidance, we do want God's presence, because we can see how messy and catastrophic that kind of freedom can be. God's presence is inescapable, but it's also a threat, and that's really the human condition. We can't live with God, we can't live without God, we try to escape that which is inescapable. But finally, David breaks through. He, he breaks through his ambivalence and his uncertainty as to God's presence, and he breaks through into actually seeing it now as a transforming joy. So verse 11 and 12, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Things can happen in life that feel like being plunged into darkness, into utter despair, when disaster strikes, when grief strikes, when terror strikes. And many here may, may know exactly what that is like. Think of the people in Nepal who have lost their home, they've lost family, they've lost the essential things of life, the essential needs, plunged into darkness, into despair, into confusion. And when that happens, you can just feel lost. But what if there is a God? What if you have a God who actually is always with you? One who never lets you go, one who you can't get rid of, one who holds you by the hand. For him, darkness is as light. You can't see through the darkness, but he can. He never loses sight of you. He has you by the hand. And suddenly in that scenario, David realizes God's presence is a comfort. God's presence is a strength. God's presence is a security. I don't ever want him to leave me because I don't want to be left in this darkness on my own. And then David takes it further. He's getting more excited about this. So verse 17, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. He's moved from God's presence is a threat to now, oh God, your, your presence is so precious. It's so precious to me. And then verse 18, when I awake, this is the pinnacle of what he's saying. When I awake, I'm still with you. And because that's the pinnacle of what he's saying, I think it means a lot more than when I wake up from a sleep. And commentators would say, actually, David, what David's getting at is here, here is when he wakes up from death. God is so impossible to lose. God never lets go. His grip is so tight that even if I die, he will be with me through death and he will wake me up. And in my resurrected body, I will be with him. I will see him. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus is brought to a, a little girl who has died. She has died. She's lying there in her bed. She is dead. She is making her, her bed in the depths, in the grave, in Sheol. And he comes in, he takes her by the hand, and he says, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. 
but it's, said, it's an affectionate phrase. There's an affection to it. It's like you would wake a sleeping child. You know, it's um, gently and tenderly, little girl, it's time to get up. He takes her by the hand, come on. And she gets up. She was dead, but she gets up like she's just been sleeping. But it's like he reaches right through death to take her by the hand and pulls her out of it. Same God has you by the hand. He has you by the hand. Even in darkness, even in death, in his presence, darkness turns to light. Death turns to resurrection. We want to get away from the presence of God, but we also want to know him, to have his hand in our hand and to know his presence as a transforming joy, to know the transformation that his presence brings in us, in our lives, in our circumstances. Then at the end of this psalm, we see that David has really got there. He's really grasped this now. Verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He's gone from feeling threatened, I will need to get away, to actually inviting the presence of God. He invites the total scrutiny of God. He invites his face. How does he get to that point? How does he get there? How could he have that assurance that, that he could invite God's scrutiny, that he could invite God's presence? You know, he knows what God says to Moses. He knows how dangerous the presence of God can be. He's seen it firsthand. There was a man called Uzzah, who David himself saw struck dead because he reached out and touched the ark. And it was all to do with God's holiness. He is aware. He's aware. Actually, God's presence, his holiness, can actually be quite dangerous for us at times. So how does he get to the place of inviting this and being assured still that God will still lead him? God will still love him. We also have this strange matter of verses 19 to 22. Slay the wicked. I hate your enemies. I abhor them. I have nothing but hatred for them. We read that and think, oh, I wish you hadn't put that there, David. It's so at odds with the New Testament. We're told to love our enemies. We're told to bless our enemies. We're told to pray for our enemies. So what is this about? What has happened between the time of David and now? Well, what happened was, a thousand years later, there was a descendant of David, the greater David, who died on a cross as he prayed for his enemies. That's what happened. That's what's changed everything. Jesus died praying the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you look at Psalm 22, it's all about God being far off, about God being unattainable, about this person searching for God's presence. It says, why are you so far off from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? I cry out, but you don't answer me. Be not far off, Lord. Deliver me, rescue me. These are words of desperation, words of searching for the presence of God. David can't get away from God's presence. Jesus can't find his presence. Because God had him by the hand, David knew that any darkness he faced would turn to light. Jesus knew that because God had let go of his hand, that even the light of the day would turn to darkness. He was plunged into darkness. David realizes, he, he has this revelation of the care and attention that had been lavished upon him as he was knit together in his mother's womb while Jesus was torn apart on the cross. Why? Why? Well, it's because he was getting what we deserve. Jesus, was, he was getting what we deserve. We try to escape the inescapable. We want to flee 
from the presence of God. And the penalty for that is that in the end, we'll get exactly what we ask for, to be abandoned completely by God. But Jesus was abandoned instead. He was abandoned instead of you. Jesus lost the presence of God so that if you put your trust in him, if you believe in him, you have the presence of God forever. He's got you by the hand and he is never, ever, ever going to let you go. And then the presence of God becomes for you a transforming joy. It's no longer a threat. It is a transforming joy because you can just rest in his arms. God pursues you. He doesn't wait for you to come to him. He pursues you because you are his handiwork. You're his masterpiece. He doesn't abandon you. And yes, he knows everything you do. He knows everything you think, even the hidden things. And yes, that can make us feel a bit uncomfortable, rightly so. But you know what? He sees the whole of you. He sees all of you. And he loves you anyway. He loves you anyway, in spite of that. How do we know that he loves us? Because he gave himself for you. He gave himself. Do you know, we started by talking about just how magnificent, powerful, all-powerful, sovereign God is. And what this, how this psalm shows us that. Do you know, it's precisely because he is all-powerful and sovereign that his suffering for us is so astonishing. So astonishing. Because it means he did it entirely voluntarily. He chose it. He chose the cross to have you. The joy set before him, he chose the cross. He gave himself for you. He pursues you. He takes you by the hand. In his presence, darkness turns to light. And even death will be just like a night's sleep that you wake up from and you wake up in glory. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know this God? Do you know this Jesus? Or are you still trying to flee from him? Are you still trying to escape the inescapable? Listen, there is no refuge from him. There is no hiding place from him. There's only refuge in him. Are you hidden in Christ? Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for who you are. You are the sovereign God, all-powerful, and yet you are intensely personal. That you came for us, even though we tried to run away, even though we tried to escape, you pursued us, and you know us, and you love us, and you want us more and more. Lord, I thank you, you never let go. I pray, Lord, that you would change us, continue to change us through your presence, that that we would know your presence increasingly in our lives. We become more and more aware of your presence. I thank you, Lord, that that is true, that you are always with us. You never leave us. You are always with us. And that is made possible by the astonishing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus. We just say we love you. We love you more, Lord. We want more of your presence, more of, more of who you are, transforming us by your grace. And Lord, I want to pray for those who don't know you, for those who are still running, for those who are still trying to escape from your presence, for those who see your presence as a threat. Lord, we pray for them. Why don't you just have in your mind now people who you know. Just think of them now. People you know who are in that situation, who don't know God, people who are still running from God. Think of them now and pray for them as we pray together. Because God knows every one of them. He sees every one of them. So Lord, we lift up these people that we're thinking of now. People who we love, people who we care about, people who are very dear to us. 
who we, we just want to see saved, who we just want to see brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, who we want to see, we want them to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want every argument and every pretension that would set itself up against the knowledge of God in their minds blown apart by you, Jesus, that the enemy would have no hold on them, but they would come to know you, Lord, that you would pursue them like you pursued us. Thank you, Lord, that you know them. Break through, please, Lord, in their lives. And we pray this in the mighty and wonderful and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.